Hi, I'm Lisa Morton, founder of Roland Dransfield PR. Welcome to We Built This City. With this podcast, I wanted to shine a light on the people who have put the heart into modern Manchester. You can build a city with bricks and mortar, but it's the people that make Manchester great. People like my guest, Eamon O'Neill, the High Sheriff of Manchester. I want to celebrate differences. I want to show as much as I can, with the help of everyone else, the strength that is in differences. Eamon is best known as one of Manchester's favourite broadcasters. You'll have heard him on BBC Radio Manchester, seen him on Granada TV, and he was the managing editor of the MEN. He's now chief executive of St Anne's Hospice. You're about to hear a masterclass in how to care about people, how to say thank you and mean it, and it's a trip through Manchester media memories. You may need your hanky for this one. Hi, Eamon. Thank you very much for joining me on We Built This City. Oh, I'm delighted to be asked. Thank you so much. So your career's taken you from teaching to radio, to TV, print media, and you make a really important contribution to charitable causes across Greater Manchester. And it's also got you chosen by the Queen to be the High Sheriff of Manchester in March this year. In the olden days, you would have been riding around Manchester on your horse, making us pay our taxes, getting armies together. But what is the Queen expecting you to do for us in 2020? Yes, it's a very good question. So the role is ancient, you're right, Lisa. It goes back more than a thousand years, mentioned in the Bayer Tapestry, although I must say they didn't mention Zoom at that point, uh, which we've all become used to. Uh, and you're absolutely right. The Sheriff um, Shire Reeve, and you know, the Lancashire, Cheshire, it was the Reeve of the Shire. So he was the most powerful person in the in the county. And it was created by the monarch because you can imagine all those years ago, people were running riot and not paying taxes, all sorts of disorder. And the king wanted someone on the ground, really, sorting it all out. So sheriffs were created. And you're right, you raise a posse, you chase the ne'er-do-wells, you raise the taxes, you look after the law and order, essentially, in the county, and you raise the armies to defend the king. None of that happens now. It's all titular. We we do support the, the principal organs of the constitution. That's the royal family, the judiciary, the police. The most important bit for me, really, I suppose, is that we take an active part in supporting and promoting the voluntary organisations in the county. The stories that emerge day after day after day, you realise that this country would just grind to a halt if it wasn't for volunteers and community groups, good causes. So getting involved and just giving them a bit of a a boost, you know, it's difficult with COVID because we're kind of virtual high sheriffs almost, although Sheila and I, the sheriffina, we have been out, but a lot of it's done on Zoom and, uh, and, and other platforms. But I did create the High Sheriff Special Recognition Award specifically to to say thank you to those ordinary people doing extraordinary things during this unprecedented time. And the nominations were open for about six weeks, and I had hundreds and hundreds of nominations. Uh, one of them, in fact, to Marcus Rashford before everyone else, I should like to say. But the letters that have flooded in uh, and emails that are flooded in have just been, you know, heartwarming. So it's been a real joy to to do that. You should have been installed in April this year as it go to monastery. Um, did you do that on Zoom? Yeah, <laughs> first time ever actually. Um, there's a few firsts with me being high sheriff. That that was the first as well. It was Zoom and Facebook Live. And again, you know, I don't think King Richard or the Sheriff of Nottingham ever considered it. So about five years ago, you get a call saying, would you be prepared to allow your name to be put forward? And I just said, yeah, thanks. 
and then forgot about it. And then a couple of years later, you get a message to say that your name is being put forward. And then eventually you get a letter from the Duchy of Lancaster to say the Queen is minded to appoint you. So anyway, you know, it's pomp and ceremony and judges in robes and everyone in uniform and a couple of hundred people, who you, you know, your family coming over from everywhere, trumpeters and all of that. <laughs> and you think, well, this is going to cost me a fortune to start with, but it's worth it. It's a one-off. Because, by the way, sheriffs don't get paid. There's no expenses. There's no stipend. It all, all comes out of your own pocket for the good of the community. Anyway, we thought it was going to be then just a couple of hundred people, then it was going to be 10 people, and then eventually we had to do it on Zoom. But you know what? Apart from feeling a bit daft, dressed up in the full regalia with the uniform and the sword and the hat and everything in my own front room, (laughs) that did seem a bit daft. But because we did it on Zoom and Facebook Live, many, many, many more people were able to join in than would have been Mm. able to be invited to the monastery. So strangely and ironically, it was more inclusive, we thought, and, you know, and every, people joined in the MP, Mike Kane, who is in that pipe mm-hmm. band. He played a pipe tune called O'Neill's March for me. That was really oh. great. Andy Burnham joined in, the Lord Lieutenant, various dignitaries and, and and family and friends. So we had the formal element to it. And when that was finished, we had a kind of a, a less formal family Zoom. And then we had a, a socially distance appropriate drink out on the road with neighbours. So it was a fantastic day. But I think what it shows, Lisa, is if you are high sheriff under these circumstances or if you've got any role under these circumstances that we've never come across before, you have to make it your own. You don't want like a wishy-washy year and nobody remembers what you've done. It's not about me. It's about uh, any footprints you might be able to leave. Mm-hmm. And I know, you know, in your job, in your business, leaving a footprint uh, or planting trees that you're never going to see is so so important and it and it is to me. As well. So finally, on this for me, I, I decided to have a theme for the year and I called it Being You, which is broad enough to be interpreted in any way you want. And I have a great interest in uh, neurodiversity and, uh, and disability. And we have a variety of uh, people with various disabilities across our extended family. And so Being You allows me to interpret it in, in any broad sense. So, so far, I've sponsored. Uh, and arranged with others' help, 11, well, they were going to be seminars. Now they've been webinars, which is uh, about disability confident, and that's about getting disabled people back into work after COVID, uh, reinvesting in them. Um, How do you develop cultures that allow for proper development of your organisation to allow for the contribution to be made by disabled people rather than paying lip service with, mm. you know, I've made a reasonable adjustment. I've got a telephone with a big screen. You know, it's not enough. Um, it's not all going to be about uh, disability. There's going to be other things as well. But I want to celebrate differences. I want to show as much as I can, with the help of everyone else, the strength that is in differences. I'm really disappointed because I had commissioned some artwork, um, which, which which is ongoing, had commissioned a theatre piece that would be produced and presented by people who are not neurotypical. Um, that can't happen at the moment unless we can revive it, you know, after Christmas or something. So it's it's all been very different to what we thought it was going to be, but nevertheless, it still feels very rewarding. You said that you're dedicating this royal appointment to the patients, staff, families and volunteers at St Anne's Hospice, where you've been CEO for four years and obviously the other charities that you work with. 
I've got personal experiences at St Anne's Hospice and my auntie passed away late last year and she'd spent two months at St Anne's and I was overwhelmed by the the love and the care that they gave her and to my mum who went to see her every day. She's actually a nurse and uh, 2020 is the year of the nurse, isn't it? It must be incredibly rewarding to work with that team of people. What do you love about it so much? Well, thank you for saying that about St Anne's, Lisa. I'm sorry for your auntie. She was in a very vulnerable position, as your mum was, as you were. And part of the hospice philosophy is that we look after the whole family. That's one of the tricky things now with lockdown. We continue to look after the patients, but we've had to restrict visiting. And you'll know from your own experience that it was kind of open house. You know, come when you want, stay as long as you want, bring who you want, bring your dog if you want, as long as it behaves. Um, and now we've had to restrict the visiting, and that's that's upsetting the the staff more than anything else. We're used to people coming to us with life-limiting conditions. That's what we're there for. We're used to people dying with us. We're very good at looking after the family during that terrible time. So that that is a challenge. So my, my journey with St. Anne's began many years ago, 20-odd years ago, when my uncle died in the Hill Green Hospice with two hospices. Um, and then a spool forward, uh, my auntie Betty died there about 10 years ago. And in between, because I was working in the media, they asked me to be a patron. I was never really sure what that meant. You know, I, I mean, to be honest, it, it just went, do you know anybody famous that can come and pull the raffle at the Christmas fair? It was essentially that. So I was a patron. And then when I was managing editor at the Manchester Evening News, I helped them with some publicity and stories and so on. And then I became a trustee. I became the chair of the trustees in 2013. and did that for three years and then left the MEN and became chief executive, as you said, four years ago. So I've, so I've experienced it as a family member like you have, Lisa. I've experienced it as a kind of a media supporter. I've experienced it as a trustee, and now I've experienced it as um, well, a member of the team. And I've done many things in my career. This is probably the most rewarding because the essence of our values at St. Anne's of compassion and, and professionalism and inclusivity and so on, all of those things really chime with me. And I would like to think that 100% of people who work at St. Anne's are doing it because it's St. Anne's Hospice, not because, in my case, you get a fancy title. Uh, we're not there for that reason. We're there because of what that hospice does. And being High Sheriff is a great privilege for me. It's also a great reflection on St. Anne's because it coincides as well with the 50th year. St. Anne's will be 50 in May 2021, so we're in the 50th year now. So it all chimes, and I'm hoping to, as you say, I've dedicated it to the hospice, but I'm hoping to use the office of High Sheriff to raise the profile even further because we're about to launch a huge multi-million pound project to build a new hospice next to the one that we've currently got in Heal Green. So, I mean, the, the people are amazing. You know, they're humble. There's a humility. There's a sense of ordinariness about what they do, and yet it's not ordinary at all. It, could, it's, it couldn't be further from ordinary. I'm very proud to be part of it. I'm sure. And what are the plans for... 2021 then and how are you going to raise the money for the the new facility <laughs> how can we help <laughs> yeah well well you see it's, a, it's going to be a 20 million pound project we've currently got a planning application in with stockport council for the land next door and we hope that i mean everything's been kind of put on hold for a little bit because of covid so we're a bit behind the curve in terms of our original timetable but we're hoping for a positive outcome from that in the autumn of this year 2020 and then we'll buy the land and then we'll start looking at raising the money. So uh, overall, it's about a £20 million project, but that includes uh, buying the land and the build and so on. And because of our very carefully managed reserves at the charity, 
um, we we will probably be able to put in um, probably eight to nine million of our own money, and then we'll be raising the rest. So I will be spending most of my time from the autumn trying to raise, say, 12 million quid. I've got a, the most amazing senior team at St. Anne's, and Rachel McMillan is the deputy chief executive and director of clinical services. So she'll be running the hospice uh, more and more on a day-to-day basis, and I'll be concentrating on um, putting my face about opening the contacts books, using the Office of High Sheriff, if at all possible, to uh, to open doors that wouldn't necessarily be open. So as you, as you probably know, with a capital bid of that size or any capital bid, you don't actually go to the public until the last furlong. Mm-hmm. Because if you went out to the public and said, and there's a great, there's a great deal of love for St. Anne's around the place. But nevertheless, if you went and said, we want to raise 12 million quid, can you give us a fiver? You know, psychologically, they're thinking, well, five's not going to make any difference. But if you've already got to 10 million, let's say, and you go to the public and say, we've got 10 of the 12 that we need, or we've got 18 of the 20 that we need, can you help us just get over the line? Then that your fiver then seems to be a bit more important. So that's the process we'll take. We'll we'll go, we'll work behind this, we'll tell the story. Because of my background, that's one of the things I've said to them the last mm-hmm. four years. Tell the story, keep shouting. Because <laughs> they're all they're all a little bit too shy about telling everybody about us. We're a twelve million pound business, you know. We're we're part of the economy of the region, and um, we're a little bit coy. Oh, aren't we lovely? We do lovely things. Yes, we are. So let's tell everybody about Saint Anne's. Mm-hmm. And because of my journalism background, I think you know. If my view is, if you don't keep telling the story, the money will dry up. Now, notwithstanding the millions that we have to raise, just on a day to day basis, we have to raise twenty thousand pounds every day. We get about a third of our money from NHS contracts with local clinical commissioning groups, and that's about four million, and we raise eight every year. Astounding, isn't it? We built this city, exploring the purposeful relationships that grow a community. I've heard you say that the one thing you need to do in life is to make a decision and take a chance. And that's (laughs) something that you've clearly done throughout your life. So you're a very well-known media figure, but you started your career out as a teacher, didn't you? Why did you make such a huge career change? It can be seen as a huge career change. I didn't see it as that, actually. I come from, my mum and dad were both teachers. And um, teaching, you know, I I felt that teaching was in my blood. My mum and dad were Irish and uh, just great storytellers, you know, as many Irish people are. And that's a, that's a bit of a cliche, that. But because they were teachers, my dad was head of a big secondary school. My mum, was a, she taught mainly reception in the infants elsewhere. Um, and it just seemed a natural thing for me to do, and I loved it. I, w- I went to St. Winifred's straight from college, St. Winifred's in Heaton, Mersey. You remember, um, there's no one crying like grandma. Oh, yeah. That's wrong, yeah. That's the famous singing school. I did five years there. Then I went up to the next parish, St. Mary's on the hill, for two years, and then back to St. Winifred. So I did five years back there as deputy head. So I did 12 years altogether. But during the last, I don't know, six or seven of those years, I had started doing radio. I'd been doing hospital radio. I then got involved in BBC Radio Manchester's community programmes when they were setting those up, or donkey's years, didn't they? Well, 1980, 1981. And I eventually joined them part-time while still teaching to to co-present um, an Irish programme. And I just loved it. You know, I was a proper red-light junkie. I felt alive and at home in the studio. In fact, when we we were ever taking the St. Winifred's children to TV studios and recording studios, I would get that tingle and I thought, I should be in the studio, never mind going back to the classroom. <laughs> so the career carried on very well, thank you. And the And the hobby was coming up very quickly behind it and it got kind of level and I knew that I'd done what I could do in broadcasting as a 
you know, playing at it as a volunteer or a kind of mini freelance person. And if I was ever going to make it, I would need to make that leap. So that's what I did. You know, I, I um, the hobby took over the career and, and I did take that decision. I, I had a secure deputy headship and I just resigned. I went to Radio Manchester on a 10-week contract to do community programmes and thought, oh my God, what happens if this all finishes? But I suppose I've gone through life thinking, what's the worst that can happen? And when you've answered that question and you think you can cope with it, then then there's no jeopardy really, or there's not done much jeopardy. And for me, it was, what's the worst thing that can happen? I'm not successful, I'll go back to teaching. And then I stayed at the BBC for a bit and then got a staff job. And I thought, there you go, then just put your feet up, 30 years, nice pension. <laughs> and then Granada came calling. It was a, a programme called What's New that Becky Wong, God bless her, she was the presenter of What's New. And uh, Rod Arthur, I think the male presenter, was leaving, so they were looking around. I auditioned, got it. And the situation repeated itself in that I was a staff job at the Beeb and I was going to Granada on a 10-week contract just to present one series. Uh, Jeopardy was a bit more because I was married by then and I'd inherited Chris as a stepson, so I you know, <laughs> at least two more people to consult. But I did it. And, you know, I've, I've done reasonably all right in the media, but you don't get anywhere, really, unless you take these chances. You can't be shy. You can't be embarrassed. I presented uh, a, a car series, The Motor Show, for ITV for many years. <laughs> And everyone who knows me said, who's writing your scripts? Because you know absolutely nothing about cars. I said, well, you say that, but... Um, I mean, that was one of the funny things. I was filming um, at Alton Park in a Porsche and I had to drive around the track and stop at a certain point, you know, and get out. The mechanics were all watching it. And then I stopped at the wrong point, so I had to do it again. Then stopped at a different wrong point, did it again. Got out, flipped the lines, you know, the usual thing. And the line was, so there it is, the, the Porsche 911 you know, the hairdresser's car has come of age or whatever, and then leave frame. And this guy who was watching said to me, oh, your job, eh? I said, I know. He said, it's all talk. I said, there is, there is a lot of talk, yeah, obviously. But he said, no, 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 the Porsche, all talk, bottom end <laughs> grunts, the power of the... I thought, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I, so I'm slightly embarrassed looking... Well, I don't look back at anyone, to be honest, <laughs> because it is embarrassing. But no one would know... Whenever anybody asks me a question in radio or television, can you do this? Do you know about that? Have you ever done that? The answer is always yes. And so I've just, you know, I've just gone with it. Um, and I think I'm not frightened of making a fool of myself. I'm not frightened of failure. And um, I wouldn't necessarily see things as failure. You just think, well, that didn't work. I'll try something mm -hmm. else. But it was, you know, many things are not in the plan. You know, I never planned to run a, our own independent television production company, but we did that, Chris and I. I never planned to be chief executive of the hospice. I did that. I never planned to be deputy lieutenant of, of the county or the, or the high sheriff. They they come along, and you either, you're either you either a passive kind of, oh, I don't think so, I better not type of person, or you're the type of person that I am that's, well, what's the worst that can happen? Let's give it a go. So you're definitely somebody who embodies the Manchester hustle because um, I love that story that you tell about when you decided you wanted to work at Granada, that you hung around the entrance to the studio was like pestering people and asking people how you could get a job. I didn't see it as pestering at the time. <laughs> I'm sure they did. Yeah. Oh, no. Well, I, I, was, I always wanted to work at Granada and I did do a bit of extra work because um, I had been a drama student and I thought, I know, I'll be an extra for a couple of weeks and then I'll be and then I'll be spotted and get a proper acting job. That never happened. Um, no, I did. Uh, I, I always wanted to work at Granada, and I applied, you know, through the usual channels a number of times and got nowhere. They're very difficult jobs to get, and they are. But they were then, and I think they are now. And I did used to go down and hang out, and I just got to know people. And 
there was the stables bar at the time. I used to go in there and just, uh, you know, <laughs> people just see it that often. They think that you do work there already. Um, not that they were paying me to do that, but then, you, you know, you just meet people and you say, oh, he's the exec producer of this and he's a researcher on that. And um, again, I was one of the oldest kind of work placements without it being an official workplace because I just turned up and became familiar. So I never got the jobs I applied for ever, but I did end up there as a presenter with Becky, as I've explained on, on What's New. So I was thrilled to bits. I loved it. I loved every minute of being in that iconic building that has such great stories. And I know your office was there, Lisa. You mm. have the great three years there. You're still connected now, aren't you? Because you're in the funded yes. warehouse. Yeah. But the stories, I'm sure you've heard all of these, that when the Bernstein family were creating Granada, they chose Manchester because, well, they were they were in cinemas, weren't they, the Bernsteins? They chose Manchester because of its reputation for being wet and they thought people would stay in and watch this newfangled telly. <laughs> but they called it Granada after the place that they had their family holiday homes because it was sunny. So to counteract the, the, mm. the wet Manchester image. And they designed that building, you'll remember at least because you had offices in it, like a hotel. So it was a corridor down the middle and the offices were out either side. And the reason they did that was because if this newfangled thing called television didn't work out, they would convert it to a hotel. And another great thing about the Bernsteins, they, uh, the biggest studio was 12, number 12, Studio 12, where they did all Stars in the Rise and all of that. But there weren't 12 studios. There was a little one, which was a presentation studio for a bit called One. Then there was two, which was the smallest of the rest of them, where we did Granada reports and various regional stuff. Then there was six, eight, and 12. There was no four. <laughs> there was no 10. It was just pure... Well, yeah, no, it was fantastic. And they had a picture of P.T. Barnum in every producer's office to remind the producers why we were there. We were there to entertain. Many, many, many years later, um, when the world had changed, when we were sitting in a, a very senior meeting and the, the chief executive said to us at that point, why are we all here? So we all launched into to entertain, to educate, to inform. No, we're here to sell advertising space. And that was a point in time where the old school realised that the world had shifted. Uh, I was kind of on the cusp of old school and new school. Um, but no, I absolutely, I can't think of a single moment that I didn't love working at Granada. I loved being in front of the camera, uh, preferred live programming. And I met my hero there, Tony Wilson, who I'd watched, you know, as a viewer. I became a colleague, I ultimately became his boss, ultimately had to ask him to leave for swearing during the three o'clock afternoon bulletin, but that's another story. But, you know, Tony Wilson, um, he's, he is one of my heroes and he, and he was a mentor and he didn't have to be. I was a new kid on the block, new presenter. Uh, he was the first one to come and seek me out and say, I'm Tony, come and have a coffee. We did. And he said, I'm presenting. Um, do you remember he presented on a Friday night uh, up front with Lucy Meacock? Mm. He said, come and see me, and uh, how, how we prepare that, how we do that. Sit in the gallery, sit with me. He was just the most amazing, selfless, kind, generous human being. Obviously, everybody's got their own view on Tony Wilson. And uh, he's got that kind of, had that swagger, obviously, and the sense of superiority. But behind it, he really cared about talent. He really cared about our world. He cared about Manchester. But he cared about the people. But I never forgot the fact that he took me under his wing. I'm filling up a bit, actually, uh, because... He didn't need to do that. You know, he didn't need to help. I mean, I had my issues with him as well. I mean, 
Many years later, <clears throat> I was executive producer down in London on this morning and Tony was down there doing a bit for Channel 4 and we had a lunch. And he said, uh, you know, you know, I've still got a contract with Granada, but I'm not getting used at all. I said, well, fun enough, I'm going back as exec producer in January, so we will be using you. And as soon as we got back, I realised that we were short of arts programmes, three hours of art. So I said to Tony, what can we do? And, and literally within probably four and a half minutes in my office, we came up with, well, he came up with a series called The Works and presented by him, obviously, produced by Jed Clark. And essentially it was a broad enough title to allow for us to look at works of art or other works within the broader art spectrum. And within, I don't know, literally four weeks, we had six episodes made and it won a, it won a Royal Television Society Award. I'm so proud of that. But it was because he was the driving creative force behind the camera, in front of the camera. Um, he just You just wound him up and pointed him in the right direction. I, I miss him so much in that respect. But here's another anecdote. This is nothing to do with the Granada, actually. Um, again, many years later, I was a governor, parent governor at Sale Grammar School where the son was going. And they were having a new arts block open. And they said, can you get anybody to open the new arts blocks? Well, who do you think? And the head teacher said, do you know Tony Wilson? I said, yeah, I know Tony. Well, I said, I'm not sure the youngsters will know him. He said, oh, no, but I love him. See if you can get Tony Wilson. <laughs> so I phoned Tony and said, um, it's a bit of a left field here, Tony, so feel free to say no, but it's a new arts block opening at Sale Grammar. He said, yeah, you want me to come and open it? No, no problem at all. When is it? So I told him when it is. He said, right, where is it? Tony, where it is. Two weeks hence or something. So the head teacher was giddy. Next thing you know, Tony, on the day, phoned me to say a bit of an issue with this evening. Um, Channel 4 want me to do a north-south divide kind of thing into the 7 o'clock news live. I said, all right, so you can't come. He said, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, they're bringing the truck to Sale Grammar School. I've phoned the head teacher. They're creating a, a space for the Channel 4 truck. I'm going to do it out there. I'm going to have all the kids there, and then we'll go in and open the thing. You think, <laughs> my hero, he was just, you know, <laughs> yeah. just a couple of anecdotes about Tony. Um, so nice. But every, every moment I spent at Granada, um, I loved really loved it's such an incredible place and we had a tiny office we camped out there it's supposed to be for six months we ended up staying for three years it changed our business and it was just it was amazing that'll be for me when I look back on my career those are the best three years and you just didn't know who you're going to meet in the corridors and there was the green room and there's there was you know costume and makeup and it was just a really special time and you felt very much connected to something incredible really I'm just so pleased that we spent that time there well, for me, it was you would stand on Deansgate or further afield and you could see the great big iconic 1960s Granada TV mm. sign on the top of the roof, you know, the big red sign. Yeah. And I used to say to myself, oh, I'd love to work there one day. And then when I did, I never, ever took it for granted. And I always mm. gave a little nod to that sign every day I arrived at, at the studios. No, it's, it's lovely. So then you went into print media. So you were the managing editor of the Manchester Evening News, which is an incredible thing to have on your CV. I mean, what was it like? What was making that transition like from broadcast to print? Yeah, well, it was kind of eased because I joined the Guardian Media Group, as it was then, um, to help them with Channel M. So I joined them not in print to start with, but I joined the director of programmes for Channel M, which was I, I thoroughly loved that time as well. Young, energetic, talented people. We had no money, we had no budgets, but that didn't matter. We just went for it. It was, it was like being at college or university again. And we were associated with Salford University as well. 
Um, but unfortunately, the Guardian was selling out to the uh, to Trinity Mirror, and they didn't want the channel any longer. And so I was offered the job as as managing editor in the in the broader business. And I hadn't worked in print. I'd been a journalist for a while. I'd written a lot in print, but I hadn't managed a print department. So I, it was a it was a steep learning curve to me. And to be honest, I didn't find it as stimulating as as broadcast because it's different now because everything's online. But when I first joined, very traditional print, very traditional um, stories. And um, let's put this on page one. Let's put this on page five. Let's put this on page seven. Then the journalist would go out, gather the story. The photographer would go out, gather the pictures. It would all come back. They'd write it up. They'd put it together. A sub would have a look at it. And you'd have to wait till tomorrow to read it when it came out in the paper. And I just found that there was the lack of that kind of urgency about it for me, having mm. learned the trade in broadcast. That did change, as I said, when everything became digital. But again, once again, you know, I'm so proud and, and so lucky to have worked for BBC Manchester, to have worked for Granada Television in Manchester and to and to, to have worked for the Manchester Evening News. So I've been blessed, really. What would you say is the most emotional event that you've kind of covered in your career? Or is that, is that impossible to choose um, one? No, probably it's probably not impossible. I think um, following the arena, um, I wasn't in media full time by then. I was at St. Anne's Hospice as chief executive, but I was still broadcasting at Radio Manchester, as I still do. And um, that was one of the times when I felt as though I'd been emasculated a little bit when the, the news broke that evening and then the news was developing the next morning and the stories were emerging and no one had phoned me. I wasn't managing editor of a newspaper. I wasn't head of regional programmes uh, with news outlets on television. And I was a freelance part-time presenter on radio. And I thought, oh, yeah, my life has moved on. Um, but anyway, luckily, uh, Kate Squire, the managing editor at Radio Manchester, did phone eventually and said, we're going to do a special programme from Albert Square this evening and we want you to present it. Well, myself and Jimmy Wag, my brother-in-law, actually, who was on Sunday morning together. Um, and so, and we did that, and that was amazing. It was, a, it was a privilege to be part of it, actually. And while I was there, I met a number of former colleagues from various broadcast outlets who were working elsewhere, so... They then asked, would I contribute to their programmes the following morning? So I went back into Albert Square the following morning to contribute to uh, BBC Scotland, uh, RTE in Ireland, and various other outlets around the place as someone who, you know, lives and breathes Manchester and was affected by it. So I think I, f I felt part of the storytelling element of it. And it was clearly very, very emotional. Carl Austin Bean said the same thing on the podcast recently that he'd just come out of office as Lord Mayor of Manchester, said it is the most devastating thing for him not to be able to help even because he didn't have his official title at that point and he was getting called from all around the world and wasn't able to give any support or any words of hope, I suppose, at that time. I absolutely agree with that and I know how Carl feels because although I did do some radios, I've just explained, um, I then carefully watch the Manchester Evening News coverage unfold. And Manchester Evening News has been around 150 years, you know, and all print media going through uh, challenging times. But the way they dealt with that, with Rob Irving was the editor at the time and Paul Coates, the managing editor who succeeded me, it was exemplary. And then the reporters, of course, and the photographers. But that, that newspaper came into its own in such a great way in support of its community. You know, it hurt in the same way as everyone else was hurting. And, uh, you know, if I was selfish, I'd be thinking, oh, I wish I was still there to be part of it. But I was able to be proud that I had been part of it. And, and, and now I was enjoying 
the huge talent and compassion uh, with which they were telling that story and continue to. This is the We Built This City podcast, celebrating the Mancunians that built and continue to build this amazing city. So obviously you're a big people person and clearly relationships are very important to you. So who would you say, obviously you mentioned Tony Wilson has an incredible impact on your life. Is there anybody else in particular that you felt really supported you over the years in your career? My wife, Sheila, is at the heart of everything I've done. She's the only one in the family, actually, who hasn't worked in the media, but she has been the foundation for the rest of us and allowed me to change direction, take the chances, change the the route I was planning on, for example, when I went to London to be exec producer of This Morning. Kieran and Laura were only five and seven, so Sheila was the sole parent Monday to Friday. And interestingly, Sheila and I have known each other since we were teenagers, so we've seen all the various twists and turns in each other's lives for 50 years, gosh. And when we got married, I was a couple of years into the radio career. And ever since then, Sheila's default position has always been, you do what you think best and we'll adapt to whatever challenges come along. And you can't beat that really, can you? I'm very lucky because that has inevitably been some uncertainty in respect of career decisions. And then the kids... Well, if you can call them kids, they're all grown up. The stepson Chris Bisson is an established actor, currently in Emmerdale, but also a producer and a presenter. Kieran is an assistant director in film and TV drama, and Laura works in television production. And Sheila and I are extremely proud of them all because they're carving out their own path. And I think we're really impressed by the three of them because they're making their way in a really difficult industry, but doing it with integrity and without compromising their own principles and values. So our core family continues to have the biggest influence on me, I suppose. And of course, parents, I suppose it seems a bit trite to mention your mum and dad. But but my mum and dad had this wonderful kind of Irishness about them, which was, it'll be all right tomorrow. Don't worry, son, today is the tomorrow you were worried about yesterday. And look, everything's fine. You know, let, let's just tell another story and let's celebrate everybody's uh, everybody's life. They They were kind and thoughtful and... It, um, I get very emotional these days because, as I said, I think early my mum was a primary school, well, infant school teacher. I meet people now who, and I'm 66, who were in the 70s, who my mum taught when they were five. And they say they remember sitting at the feet of my mum at the end of the day when she was telling her stories about Twinkle Toes and Chicky Wicky Wacky and all the things, which incidentally we did publish as a book just before she died. <clears throat> and then and my dad's the same, you know, he... He stood at the school gates every morning to say hello to every child coming in. This is a secondary modern school at the time. And they they were just really lovely people, person. And, and we I owe them so much, the storytelling, I suppose. Everything I do now in work at St. Anne's Hospice or anywhere, in fact, um, whether it's uh, something straightforward in the, in the day job or whether it's awkward or difficult, you know, perhaps a reorganisation. When I come home at night, I imagine my mum still being alive and she's saying to me, what did you do today, the name? And, and when I tell her, I want her to think that whatever it was I had done, I'd done it properly and in her image. So that's the principle. That's the basic principle for me. Uh, another person, um, which is unusual, is a nun, actually, Sister Aquinas. God bless her. She's in the 90s now. When I started teaching at St. Winifred, she was the head teacher. And she was a very severe nun, but we soon wore her down. And she has been most inspirational and supportive person in, in my careers because she knew that, um, well, I hope she thought I was a decent teacher, but she knew that I had kind of a wandering eye into the media and so on. And she, and she just made it very easy for me to to do that. And then when I'd left teaching, 
and gone to Granada, I met the producer of This Is Your Life. And I said to her, why don't you have ordinary people on This Is Your Life with Michael Aspel instead of just famous people? And she said, well, who do you think? I said, well, I've got the perfect person. And it was Sister Aquinas. And she was perfect because she'd been, an, she'd, at the time, I think she'd been a nun for 40 or 30 years or something like that. And, and uh, or she'd been at St. Winifred's 30 years and head for 25 years. Total dedication and vocation. But also because it was St. Winifred's, we had these connections with Abba, uh, with Paul McCartney, with all these you know famous people that the children had sung with. So I said, you've got the perfect mix here. You've got an individual who's a nun, an ordinary person, a head teacher, but you can bring all these famous people into the story. So we set it up. So we had all the choir in the hall, and uh, the only person who wasn't in on it was Sister Aquinas. The rest of us were, of course. So we were practising with Bill Tarmy, and the cameras were there. Oh, yeah, we told them it was like, you know, for behind the scenes, for the video that will eventually come out with the single. And uh, it was it was my job to kind of just distract Sister Aquinas for a bit from looking down that corridor where Michael Aspel had hidden himself. So they were halfway through this song, and then I could see Michael Aspel over Sister Aquinas' shoulder coming in. I was getting all a bit just, I was, we were all so excited. She was looking at me, and I was I must have been twitching, and she was kind of nudging me, saying, stand still, type thing, because she's very posse. And Michael Aspel came through the door, and she turned around, she saw Michael Aspel, and she she gasped and she put her hand to her mouth and she turned to me and she said, Michael Aspel's come for you, Eamon. <laughs> I said, actually, he hasn't. And we all stepped back and then uh, he presented her with a red book and, and then we all headed off to Granada Studios where we recorded the episode. Ted Robbins, the wonderful Ted was the warm-up man. Oh, it was, it was amazing. And um, it was just a little, a very small kind of way of paying her back. But she, I think she's the only nun to have appeared on This Is Your Life and certainly, you know, alongside Paul McCartney and <laughs> Abba. Yeah. You were very close to the Diane Oxbury, weren't you, as well? And you, you sit on her trust. The, are you the trustee now for the... Yeah, yeah, we, we set the charity up soon after Diane died. And I love Diane and that was another great highlight of my career was presenting the breakfast programme with um, mm. on BBC Radio Manchester for two years with Diane. Such a, such a laugh. You know, and um, I know you came across her when you went for all the cheap food at Marks and Spencer's at the end of the day, <laughs> didn't you? To a close pair of us. <laughs> and she'd probably just be diving in on her way back from doing the weather on Northwest tonight. But she was a real authentic person as well, same as Tony. Uh, no airs and graces, not interested in celebrity, not interested in anything but doing a job well and a family and friends. Uh, gorgeous person, you know, in in every aspect. And we had just such the, the best two years together. We laughed and laughed and laughed. Mm. Uh, I mean, it was a, you know, it was a morning news program. So we did that bit properly as, as, as best we could. I was blessed to, I saw her the night before she died. I went to the Christie to visit her. And I'd spoken to her on the Thursday before when she was in Withingshaw. Uh, and she was due to come to St. Anne's Hospice, actually. But she wasn't well enough, as it turned out, on the day she was due to come. And, and she died that night. Um, I, I still miss her dreadfully. But, you know, we have to think of supporting uh, Ian and the kids now. But, the, yeah, we set the Diane Oxbury Trust up, and there are seven or eight of us now who are trustees. We had a great first year. Um, the COVID hasn't helped this year. It's a bit like the second album. You know, we launched the first album. It was amazing. What do we do now? So we're just kind of regrouping, and we need to keep her name alive, her memory alive, but also, most importantly, that awareness for women about that terrible cancer that got her that slips under the radar so many times. And, you know, we're targeting GPs if we can. The next wave of activity will be to target GPs and, and try and help find a way for them to be a bit more proactive in encouraging ladies to to look 
for the early signs. Because Diane, you know, she had no idea. She just thought she was tired. She'd done that huge walk for children in need in November. She had a bad back. She thought that was from walking the dog and the kids and the horse. And, and, and you know, and it wasn't, it was sinister. But um, there's no point in dwelling on that now in, in, in terms of her story. But she would want us to be changing someone else's story. And, that, and that's what we're doing. The outpouring of grief for Diane was a bit like when Princess Diana died. It felt certainly in Manchester, there was so much love for her. She'd been part of our lives on a daily basis for so long. Yeah, uh, it was astounding. And and yet not surprising because she, everybody she met, and even though she didn't meet, but who they thought they knew her because she was in the front room every evening at 10 to 7 or whatever. Um, she was the same with everybody. She, and I used that word earlier, authentic. She was, she was a real... Geordie, she was a real person, you know, who realised how lucky she was to have Ian as a husband and then the children and to have the great job that she had. But she was the least showbiz person that I ever met. And um, it's hard to, I, I'm, I'm struggling to find a word that, that describes her better than authentic. Mm. Sarah Collins, who obviously has worked with you for a long time, who is former head of sport at BBC Radio Manchester and friend of mine, and she's been on We Built the City podcast. She said that you've been a big mentor to her, but she she's asked me to ask you about the trifle story with <laughs> Diane. <laughs> uh, right, so it's probably not funny to you lot, but it, I mean, I'm, I'm laughing already. I know the ending. But um, so, so imagine we would do six till nine every morning in the breakfast programme. And, and uh, it wasn't a typical BBC studio, really, because she'd bring a kettle in. The other time she'd bring one of her dogs in as well that was, and then would be, choose to be sick on your shoes or that kind of carry on. <laughs> um, and she'd be diving out to record a bit of weather and diving back in. So the way it worked was one of us would drive the desk and the other one would be uh, sitting on the other side of the desk and would work on the scripts and make the tea. <laughs> and then the following day we'd swap over. And people would come in and, uh, you know, they'd bring you some daft things. And one guest came in one day with a bloody great trifle. And you don't get much chance to talk on a breakfast show because there's not much music. So you have to do it in between little clips. Hello, I'm Eamon. This is Diane. Thanks very much. Sit there. Put the headphones on. We're with you in a minute. Your first question is this. But this fellow was determined to tell us why he'd brought this trifle. And he's like, I've brought you a present uh, because I know you love trifle. So immediately we were looking at each other saying... I said, have you ever said that? <laughs> I, love trifle. I, I mean, no, I'm not averse to a bit of trifle, but I don't remember ever, ever publicising the fact. Anyway, he, uh, he said, what shall I do? <laughs> what shall I do with it? Um, but in mind, this is on air. And Diane just turned around and said, put it on that chair over there and we'll enjoy it later. So we put it on the chair. We did the interview and off he went. And the, the trifle was left behind. And we kept looking at each other and thinking, no, I'm not, I'm not. You you taste it. I'm not tasting it. You never know. Some random person's brought it. You don't know the fingernails were dirty. You don't know where they cooked it. You don't know, oh, if there's hair in it or anything. Never eat anything a viewer or a, re or a listener brings you. That's, that was the, that was Diane's rule. So it stayed. So it just stayed on the chair after nine o'clock. We went home, came back the next day. Bearing in mind, two, at least two more programs, if not three, would have been presented from that studio. Nobody moved it. Came in the next day, it was still there. Came in the, in the next day, it was still there. So eventually, Dan said, I've had enough. So she shifted it and we chucked it away. The following day, about quarter past seven, a guest comes in with a bit of an answer, with a manager, you know, like a, a minder, to make sure they were saying the right things. So the guest sat down in front of us. <laughs> and this person said, uh, do you mind if I stay in the studio? I said, no, no, not at all. And he went to sit on the chair, which was by now empty, just like a chair. 
And just as he was putting his bum on the chair, Diane said, Don't sit on there, that's for the trifle! <laughs> and, and he jumped up and looked around. Obviously, there's no trifle there. <laughs> and, and so we made a point of trying to make that happen as often as possible. I told you it wouldn't be funny to you, but I can imagine it now. And every time somebody went to sit on that chair, she would jump up with a big booming Geordie voice and, Don't sit there, that's for the trifle! Um, well, it obviously um, amused Sarah Collins for us to remember it. So I hope you said thank you because I've also heard you say that you've always got to say thank you. Absolutely. And if you say it, you'll be remembered by everybody. So I hope you did say thank you. So why is that so important to you? Right, there's two things that are important and you can read as many management books as you want, but it boils down to if you are in a leadership position, if you if you thank people for what they've done, for me, that's the least you can do. And if you can smile at them whilst you're saying thank you, or even smile at them another time, that makes all the difference. So smile a lot and say thank you a lot. It actually just boils down to that for me. I know it's a bit more nuanced than that. But every single individual in every organisation is as important as the next, whatever your title and however fancy your office. Mm, I totally agree with that. And that is one of our values. We say we say thank you. And when we say thank you, we mean it. And that's really important. Yeah, no, exactly right. I love your values. I love them, actually. You know, I mentioned, I think earlier, leave things in a better place out of respect for those that follow you. Plant the trees that you'll never see. I absolutely love that one because that's what that's what we're here to do, isn't it? You know, you, you pass through on your journey and you want to leave something better than you than you found it however good that was if you're loving we built this city please could you take the time to leave a five-star review on your podcast platform thank you so lastly you've been a deputy head a radio presenter tv presenter you've been lots of things and you're now the high sheriff of manchester what do you want to be next i've got two kind of not, not burning ambitions, but two things I'd like to do. One that I've wanted to do for many, many years, and I nearly did it, and that is to be the voice of an animated character. And I nearly did it. Well, I did I did actually record it, but it never went anywhere. It, it didn't happen. It was a, a disgruntled and slightly inebriated hamster once. But don't ask me to do the voice because I'd have to get into it all. You know, I'd have to go through my whole Stanislavski method to get back into that character. And, and the other one is um, I've written quite a few... Bookazines, when I was at the MEN, you know, like books about Bellevue and books about Manchester and that, but not not proper hardback books. And I don't think I've got necessarily got a story in me. But in November, it will be 32 years since Jimmy Wag and I sat down together on a Sunday morning on BBC Radio Manchester uh, to present that Daft Sunday morning show. We've split up at the moment because of COVID, but I think it would be great to find a way of encapsulating some of those tales just to write down some of the things that we that made us laugh and made us cry and that we shared with the listeners over those 32 years <clears throat> so it'd be nice it'd be nice to come up with something like that got a quick fire manchester round before we finish i know the answer to the first one united or city united <laughs> going back many years when gary neville and paul Scholes and all those were just the kids Jimmy Wagon, Andy Buckley and I went along at the invitation of Paul McGuinness to do some media training with them um, and we saw straight away that Gary Neville, we virtually put money on, Gary Neville being captain of the United, captain of England and, uh, you know, a leader of men. So we were we were very proud and privileged to engage with those fellas before they became the superstars that they were. So they, that was a great privilege as well to do that. Maybe a future High Sheriff of Manchester. 
Well, absolutely. Yeah, I, I could see. I could see him with a sword. Could you say? say <laughs> I see him in that outfit. <laughs> Favorite Manchester band or artist? I bet all your other guests have answered that really quickly, haven't they? It's usually Oasis. <laughs> yeah, can I say Mike McGarry, poet? Yeah, yes, you can. Absolutely brilliant answer. What do you order at the Chippy? Well, <laughs> <laughs> Sheila would have cheese and onion pine chips, and I would probably have. I don't know if this sounds a bit odd. It does definitely to Southerners. Fish and chips, but with gravy. Yeah, I think it's completely acceptable. Coronation Street or Emmerdale? Oh, you see, I'm torn now. It was <laughs> Coronation Street when Chris was in it, and now it's Emmerdale because Chris is in it. Exactly. So Chris, did, Chris did about five or six years in Corrie, part of the first Asian family to, that arrived, although he's not Asian, actually. Um, and he's been in Emmerdale now for 10 years. So if you take Chris out of it, I think, Traditionally, it would be Coronation Street because we all grew up watching it. Mm. But in recent years, uh, I think I would probably sit down for an Emmerdale episode over a Corrie one, although I feel very disloyal saying that. Yes. <laughs> so last question, what do you miss most about Manchester when you're not here? I miss the kind of equilibrium, I think. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we had some fantastic weather. This week, we've got some rubbish weather. You meet people on the streets. I was doing some filming only this morning in Withenshaw in Civic Centre, or just Civic, as we call it, in Withenshaw. Mm. And I'd forgotten just how amazing these people of Manchester are on the streets. They don't give a toss. They just come up and chat to you. And, and you know, that's, it's very mank, and, and I love that. It's very Irish as well. So if I'm in Ireland, which I am a lot, I don't miss it because they're very, very similar. But if you're, if you're say, Mallorca or Spain or, you know, or elsewhere, you don't get that. You don't get that kind of eyeball-to-eyeball -eyeball equality of approach. It doesn't matter who you are, what you're wearing, I'm going to talk to you in the way I talk to everybody else. So I love that. And I love the – you've referred to it a few times that we've got this balance in Manchester. It's a swagger, but with the humility about the swagger. We swagger. But then we think, yeah, but we do that all the time anyway, so it's no big deal. I suppose if I was being philosophical, I would miss the sense of just being at home. I actually love being at home. Um, the lockdown has been terrible for many people, I know that. But for me, spending more time at home without having to um, to run around like a, a, a dervish, actually, I, I, love, I love, I just love the family in the home. So, Eamon, thank you so much for joining us today. I've really, really loved it. And it's been great to kind of talk about the best office in Manchester, which was home for you and home for me. And also just to talk about taking risks and taking those kind of opportunities that come your way. And I suppose that's never been more appropriate than it is now, given everything that's going on. So thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you for asking. I've loved your podcasts. I've, I've listened to many people, some of whom I know well, some of whom I know a little, some of whom I don't know. But, you know, and what you're doing in your day job with Roland Dransfield, the, the values that you place upon the way you do business is amazing. And, and, and thank you so much for allowing me to be part of this. I really appreciate you saying that, Eamon. Thank you very much. Eamon O'Neill helped build the city by digitising the role of the High Sheriff of Manchester, by celebrating people's differences, and by being all talk, but not all talk. We Built the City is out every Thursday. My next guest is Sir Richard Lease, leader of Manchester City Council. This is a podcast from Roland Dransfield PR. Our mission is to build purposeful relationships in all we do. If you want your company to be part of that, give us a call on the number we've always had, 0161 236 1122. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and leave us a review where you get your podcasts. Thank you.